All right, so we're back to uh, gender and the scriptures. We're talking in part two now of, okay, so we, last week we looked at, or last session we looked at definitions, we looked at sort of baseline frameworks, and now mm-hmm. we're sort of leaning to, okay, so what about the Bible? Yeah. We did basic intro to gender identity language, yeah. and now we're like, okay, what does the scripture have to say about it? Yeah. Totally. And so I think for now, like focusing on the, the scriptures, like you're saying, I think the best place to start is Genesis 1 and 2, okay. looking at the creation of mankind, the creation of, of humans, okay. ma- male and female, and kind of what that, what these texts, Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, have to say about what it means to be male and female, made in the image of God, okay. and then how that, this will be kind of maybe towards the end, how that's reaffirmed by Jesus in, in the New Testament, okay. in Matthew 19. So just kind of starting a fairly famous passage. So Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27 and following, says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So there's a couple moving pieces there, but I think just kind of the two big ones to kind of have on our radar screen is that it's you know very obvious, no one really disagrees, that, that all humans are created in God's image. Okay. And so you have in verse 27 of Genesis 1, God created man. It's just the generic word, not necessarily for like, you know, the biological male sex, but okay. humankind in humankind. general. Humankind. Yeah. So yeah. humankind is created in God's image. Yeah. And in the image of God, God creates mankind. That's the big number one. Yeah. But then this image is dual, male and female. Okay. He created them. And I think what's important to just, you know, again, it's kind of a fairly obvious observation is that whatever the image of God is, it's something that's imaged or something that's represented or displayed in both male and female, not just one or the other, which again, maybe sounds obvious to us, but I think, you know, ancient cultural context, you know, it's a very specific group of people that are called the image of God, often male people in authority, kings, rulers, so so on and so forth. But there's this democratization, if you will, of the image of God, male and female. Yet there's also implied difference. So while it's everyone is image of God, there's two different ways, if you will, male and female, that this image is represented. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, kind of basic, kind of one on one, just to start there okay. uh, with some of that. Now, I have a I have a question. Yeah. So sometimes people like in a modern conversation, like we talked about last week, to sort of say sex and gender are mm-hmm. different. Yeah. So now when we're bringing this 21st century question that's yeah. on the streets, totally. And now we're coming to Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. What is Genesis 1 saying to that question? Yeah, about the, the gender question. Yes. Yes. And so what's interesting is that you have male and female, and for the biblical authors, they're assuming gender and sex, they're going together. Okay. They're not bifurcating yeah. these two. Well, we have now separated these two for the most part in our modern culture. They're just writing with this assumption that male, biological sex, and gender, how that's often expressed, that is one and the same. Yeah. And the same thing applies to female. And I think part of where you can actually see that in the text, it's a glimmer, but it's a it's in that right direction, is the very next line in verse 28 when God says to male and female, his images, he says, blesses them and says, be fruitful and increase in number. Hmm. Now, how do you go about doing that if you're male and female? Well, there's only you know yeah. one way that actually yeah. happens, right? Sure. And so there's like it's it's implied, but there's this hmm. inherent assumption that there is some sort of difference, biological difference between male and female that enables verse 28, the be fruitful and multiply commission hmm. to actually take place. So now, again, there's, it's, it's not like explicit, yeah. but there's an assumption in that direction that there's some difference that's required that we'll say right now very obviously is biological, but I would make the case it's, it's more than biological. There's yeah. 
inherent difference in who male and female are ontologically yeah. that leads to this be fruitful multiply or at least allows for this be fruitful multiply yeah. to take place. Yeah, it's helpful. So there's this 21st century question that they were trying to ask of a text mm. whose authors have a different assumption. Yes. They assume that gender and sex are the same. The same, yes. They, they cannot be separated. And now we're coming to this ancient text asking a question that the text would say, uh, you, you, you can't separate. You can't separate those two. Right. And I think that's part of it. just having that awareness as you, we engage the text, especially with questions around gender and sexuality, that there are just, like you're saying, just basic inherent assumptions to how these words are being used, the worldview behind them that we have to just recognize and recognize that if we're going to be you know, people that submit ourselves to the scriptures, that it is this worldview the God's worldview, God's kind of, you know, lens on society, lens on what it means to be human that we are called to kind of really submit ourselves to. Yeah. And so I think we have to just be very cautious about, okay, well, are the authors meaning gender or, or sex? Well, again, like you're saying, that's not the question they're asking. So I think we also need to have a sense of, I guess, charity or grace with the biblical text, if you will, and not demanding that the text be as explicit as we want the text to be about, okay, now we have a clear definition of gender. Now we have a clear definition of biological sex. Because like, again, what we're saying, that's just assumed by these authors. Mm -hmm. Now, I think we can also point out uh, in the text, the, the scriptures, that there is this connection. Again, it, it's implicit because it is assumed, but it's, there is this connection between sex and gender as being one and the same. Yeah. And I think one of the, the key examples that I would kind of point people towards is that when you go further in the biblical narrative, in the Old Testament in particular, you begin to have all of these sort of guidelines and laws around circumcision for the males of Israel. Yeah. And as you read some of those narratives, it's very clear they're talking about males, the male pronouns, there's the male genders, all, all that is right there. And that's intimately tied to circumcision, biological mm. sex. And so there, that's another sort of small example, but I think pointing in, the, in a really very clear direction that sex and gender, they go together. Yeah. And it's not with just any generic pronoun or any generic you know, male or female. It's yeah. male only that yeah. circumcision is tied to. And circumcision obviously is a biological component, yeah. which is tied to all the words that we would consider as perhaps gender, like male. Yeah. Those two go together. Yeah. So you're saying in the history of Israel, like we can look at Genesis 1 and say these are together. And then you, as you look at sort of the, the outworking of the story, mm -hmm. the authors are connecting the pronouns with the, the sex yes. and actually having practices that connect it around their spiritual exactly. life. Exactly. And that they go together. And I think yeah. this also, you know, because we're talking about Genesis 1, talking big picture, you know, number yeah. two about circumcision, male, yeah. how that goes throughout the rest of the Old yeah. Testament. If you bring in even Genesis 2, I think it grounds it even more. Okay. When you have the narrative of God forming man from the dust of the ground yeah. and breathing into him the breath of life. Okay. And so in the seminar, we talked about this component of this, I don't know, I'm going to kind of butchered the language here, but the dual component, if you will, of mm -hmm. physicality and what we might call like spirituality or the spiritual going together, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there's a level of the physical and the spiritual, the breath of life, kind That's of the good. same word for spirit, yeah. they go together. And to divorce those two, where we might just say, oh, all that, you know, the body isn't as important. That's often sometimes yeah. how this conversation plays out. Well, for the writer of Genesis and God in particular, the body is something that's formed by God mm. from the dust of the ground. It's kind of, you know, metaphorical language there, yeah. but it's still something intentionally formed by God. The physical and the spiritual go together yeah. so that the man becomes, Genesis 2, 7, a, quote, living being. Yeah. It's a word for soul there, a, a nefesh hayah, yeah. a, a soul that a is living, living a living yeah. soul, exactly, that is a combination of physical 
and what we would, you know, in our kind of modern term called maybe spiritual going together. Mm -hmm. And so we can't necessarily divorce the physical as being something less than and only elevating perhaps mm. what's in my mind or my thoughts, because that's mm. somehow how this conversation tends to go, mm -hmm. is that what's really true about me is what I think or what I feel mm. on the inside. And what Genesis 2 is saying, what it means to be human is the merging together and a sort of equalness, if you will, of both the physical and both what we might consider maybe the intellectual, the mental, the emotional, they go together. So what I hear you saying is that there's uh, this sort of, from a biblical perspective, you cannot separate the body mm -hmm. you are born in on some level, yeah, uh, which is gendered, yeah, from your experience of life and living, yes. and that these, in that sort of built into Genesis two, it's reinforced or it's maybe built into Genesis 1, reinforced in Genesis 2, yes. and then continually reinforced throughout the biblical narrative. Exactly, yes. Well, I think, you know, Genesis 2 is doing a lot of things, but if we're going to look at it through the lens of kind of looking at our modern culture with gender identity questions, yeah. Genesis 2 is giving us sort of a framework of our bodies are actually telling us something about their purpose, how God has intended us to live yeah. and to, you know, flourish in this world. And that our bodies are not just like accidents or some yeah. secondary matter. They're part of God's way of communicating yeah. to us about who we are yeah. and how we're to live in light of who God says we are. Do you think that, um, so as that story in Genesis 2 plays out, right? The the first thing that's not good in creation is man alone, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Forms um, Eve yeah. right? out of the, the side of Adam. Yeah, yeah. And so now there's this intentional creating of a different gendered being. Exactly. Yes. And this is explicit, even kind of, you know, we're kind of building this case as we yeah. go along here. 2.18, Genesis 2.18, the line where God says, I will make a helper suitable, Ezra Kenegdo. We've talked about this yeah. before in other, you know, discussions. But that word Kenegdo, you know, biblical scholars way smarter than me have talked about how that word is something to the effect of something that's like, but also opposite yeah. to. And so you have in that narrative of Genesis 2, where God says in 2.18, I will make a helper suitable for him. And then you have like the next few lines of like Adam's like naming animals at the zoo or something. And you're wondering, okay, so why am I being told all these details of like all the animals coming yeah, yeah. to Adam? And, you know, he names them, you know, it's like, oh, that makes for a cute, you know, story in children's Bible. And then you come to the end of chapter two or towards the end of chapter two. And we're told by the narrator, but for Adam, there was no Ezra Kenegdo found. Mm. And so I think what the narrative is trying to tell us is that. There is something, and obviously animals are different than us. They fulfill part of the Kinegdo role. Yeah. They're different, but they're not enough alike. Mm. And so when you mm. come to then the forming of the woman, which is the next few lines, that God made the woman from the rib or from the side is probably a better translation, taking yeah. out of, of the man. And so now we have, when Adam sees this woman, Eve, that he kind of bursts into song as yeah. a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, because now we have this fulfillment of someone who is like and also different. Yeah. And so I think that is important in the back to Genesis one, male and female. There's something that Genesis two is sort of maybe building off of a little bit here where it wasn't good for man to be alone. And it wasn't also going to be adequate or good for someone to be completely different and or completely alike. There had to be this specific fulfillment of Kinegdo like and different so yeah. woman fills that likeness in the human aspect but different at some level so there's implied again difference between woman and man yeah that again which is sex and gender. sex and gender totally and yeah. they just get kind of multiplied yeah. or, or which is sort of assumed more. in the text assumed right? so in the text yes one, you have 
sort of the male and female combining of sex and gender. Mm-hmm. So both human made in the image of God. Yes. Both different yes. by sex and gender. And then you get into Genesis 2 and you have this being that's made that's like Adam. Yes. Both humans. Exactly. But is different in gender in, in sex and gender. And so you have this sense of the biblical authors are saying, actually, you can't discount gendered embodiment yes yes totally and i think that's important way, it's a good way to phrase it is that we are sexually gendered embodied that's a mouthful there but sexually gendered embodied creatures yeah and that's i think genesis 1 and 2 combined and then i think i want to bring in matthew 19 here because i don't also want to just think oh this is old testament we you know move on to something different in the new testament when you come to matthew 19 and then mark 10's like the parallel passage jesus i think to give the context is being asked a question about divorce so i think that's important so yeah. we're not directly addressing gender questions or yeah. marriage marriage questions, you know, homosexuality questions. But in that context, though, when Jesus is asked by the religious leaders, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You know, and referencing back Deuteronomy 24, and there's a whole background there. Jesus quotes both from Genesis 1, did you not know God created the male and the female? So that's the great uh, image of God passage. But then he also quotes Genesis 2, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Mm. And if he was only going to, you know, address the permanency question of marriage and divorce, all he had to do was quote Genesis 2, mm. what God has formed together, let no man separate. But he also, Jesus does, brings in Genesis 1 about in the beginning, God created the male and female. So for Jesus, somehow inherent in this sort of definition of, of marriage and gender and sexuality, it is important for Jesus to reaffirm both Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. God created humans, male and female. This is God's intent. This is God's design from the very beginning. So as it was God's intent from the very beginning, that marriage should be between one man and one woman for one lifetime. So it is that God, God's intent is for male and female to exist as his images in the world. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is like, as we've sort of talked about in Genesis 1 and 2, how there's this sort of default assumption of sex and gender being merged and there being similarity and difference Mm -hmm. between men and women. Jesus is taking these assumptions and then teaching about them. Teaching about them. Exactly. Uh, Yes. And then Paul and others will also then take these assumptions Mm -hmm. because you're not going to see then Paul separating out gender expression yes. or gender identity and sex either. He's going to sure. then merge these when he talks about marriage and men and totally. women. Yes. And, and so it's like this continuous mm-hmm. and pretty consistent yes. merging of gender and sex For sure. in the biblical narrative. Totally, yes. Yeah. So you get to passages like, you know, even 1 Corinthians 11. It's a little bit controversial with the head coverings, but there seemed to be some assumption about gender differences yeah. in the church gathering there. Uh, You get to Ephesians 5 within the household marriage. I think there's very clear assumptions there about male and female husbands and wives. And Paul's actually pushing on gender assumptions in society. Totally. While at the same time affirming that men and women biologically are different and have potential different gender expressions. Exactly, for sure. He's actually doing both. Totally. He's He's not just rubber stamping gender norms Mm -hmm. in their culture. Exactly. But he's also recognizing... Biological or being sexed as a man or, or a woman, woman yeah, yeah. has different expressions. Expression, totally, for sure. And I think that's important to see that this is not just what we're saying, a Genesis 1 and 2 thing. You know, somehow it's different now, but there's this consistency, especially as you, you know, kind of traverse the terrain of Scripture. You have the circumcision component we talked about at the beginning, male there. You have Jesus reaffirming Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. 
Paul does a lot of stuff where he is, again, pushing against some stereotypes, but also recognizing there are differences Mm -hmm. and that there's this consistent witness throughout the biblical narrative that male and female image of God are crucial components for how we live out our humanity and that they're not to be talking about sex and gender now divorced from each other, that our bodies matter. They're good and they point us to the direction as to how God has designed intend us to be yeah maybe one way of framing it is that our actual culture has a low value yeah. for the body yeah yeah and actually biblical culture has a super totally. high value yeah, yeah. for the body for sure and embodiment for sure totally and i think i mentioned this in the seminar if anyone's listening attended that but love thy body by nancy piercy makes this exact case mm-hmm. that she is wanting christians to recognize that we have such a robust and good view of of the body and that often secular culture is having a lower view of the body and just to reclaim that at heritage because sometimes christians get stereotyped as oh you know physical isn't as important the spiritual is all that matters it's all about the spiritual but it actually they both go together from a the biblical biblical narrative yes really carries that high value that high value totally yeah for sure i think one last thing i'll say is that as we're having this conversation if you're listening perhaps you're wondering about intersex Mm. and eunuchs we're going to have a whole other kind of episode on that. So I recognize that that kind of adds another layer to this. Um, but I, I just want to kind of throw that out there. But recognize that we will talk about that, and that is an important piece of this conversation. Okay. So cool. I think that's great. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yep.